I think the problem we still have with morphological computation, we all agree it happens. I mean, it, in fact, engineers have been using it for a long, long time anyway. We just didn't call it that, right? It's clever design, right? You you, you build in the complexity to your, 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 your mechanisms inside a clock or a watch or whatever, and, and there you have something that doesn't have a central controller. It's all done within the mechanics. So we've been doing it for a very long time. But I think as it started to consolidate, the world of, of computer science was thinking in that way quite a lot. Uh, engineering was, in, pure engineering, was not thinking that way very much. Um, it was still considered part of clever technical design rather than, and because we're so enamored, I think, of fast electronics and, and being able to build incredibly sophisticated control systems in, in electronics, there didn't really seem to be a need to, to go in that direction. Um, you've made the mechanical system as simple as you could for it to do the job so that it's easy to control. Once you move into the world of deformable, nonlinear, you know, anisotropic materials, that type of thing, uh, that traditional approach doesn't work very well. Now you suddenly are up against computational demands that are just ridiculous. And so that's where I think it started to get some ground. Soft robotics was able to sort of capture that whole idea of morphological computation. Um, my concern with it, I, I, I still avidly believe that's the way it works. We call it neuromechanics when we're in doing neuroscience. Um, but, um, you know, which, who can point to the killer app, if you will, the robot that demonstrates this to the max where you could not possibly have had it do that job without having morphological computation? I think of myself as a, a, a scientist with some engineering uh, tendencies. Um, so I'm not formally trained as, a, as an engineer, um, but I love engineering, and I think that it's probably something that I've done since I was a very young child. So uh, I think very much like an engineer, but my profession has always been science, and they, they're not always the same thing, and we can certainly talk about some of those differences if you're interested. Well, what's the differences? Maybe quickly. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that um, scientists are always delving into the unknown, and they're perfectly comfortable with asking questions and not knowing the answers. Uh, engineers are not in that luxurious position, although they are trying to do new things and, and adapt the way they do things and, and create things. Um, they don't have the luxury of not having answers. Uh, they have to have a way to do it. Um, you know, you, you don't want an engineer who says, well, you know, I think this bridge might work. You know, uh, that's, that's not an acceptable thing to do. Um, and research engineers, of course, are always, uh, even though they are more like a scientist and they're going into areas where we don't have the answers, uh, they're still being driven by finding an answer and it doesn't necessarily have to lead to new truths, right? It doesn't have to. It just needs to be a, a good, better, more efficient, uh, novel way of doing something. Uh, so scientists are, are, are tending to work in a world of 
of questions and unknowns in, in a way that I think is a little uncomfortable for some engineers. Maybe I want to go for the first thing you did, I think, in software robotics in 2007, the tobacco hornworm. If you can tell me the story, why did you choose the tobacco hornworm uh, as maybe an inspiration here? I think it's early in the beginning of the field of robotics. Can you tell, get back to time, the state of the field? Why did you choose that uh, alongside your colleague at this time to study and also design the soft robot in spine today? Absolutely. So, you know, as with many things in uh, in pursuing a, a science or an engineering career, you, you don't plan it all out. Sometimes in retrospect, it looks as if you plan to do what you've done because there's a logical series. But it's at a time you don't know it. Uh, so I, well, I'm actually a neuroscientist, right? I, I study the way nervous systems work and the way they control bodies. And uh, I chose to use invertebrates to do that, and in particular insects. So I had, uh, long before I started doing any sort of robotics work, uh, my primary um, career, I think, was in studying the way uh, nerve signal, the way sensor information comes into a nervous system and the way that can control a body. Uh, but I'd always had uh, in the background of my, um, my thinking that it helps to be able to build something in order to be able to understand it better. Because once you try to build it, you realize all of the things that you failed to think about when you were studying that thing. Uh -huh. So I've always had a little bit of a tendency to say, okay, you know, how can we make something like this? So uh, we were studying the caterpillar for a variety of reasons. It seems like a very strange thing to study. You know, it's, uh, it's a little obscure. But it turns out that it's got huge technical advantages, right? Uh, we can isolate the nervous system and keep it alive. We can record from neurons very, very easily. We can identify them. Its entire anatomy has been well mapped out. We know all the muscles. There are 2,000 muscles in a caterpillar. You know, it's 10 times what we have in our body. So they're a fascinating creature. And we were primarily interested in using those technical advantages to study the way the nervous system functions. Now, it's only really worth studying a nervous system if you're interested in the peculiar things that nervous systems do rather than using the nervous system to understand how liver cells function. You know, you, 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 you study the brain because it does unique things that brains do. And the more we were studying the details of the biochemistry and the synaptic connections in the nervous system, the more we had to sort of stand back and say, okay, what does this mean for behavior? So behavior is something that really is tied to the way nervous systems function. And when we looked at it, you know, was we looking at motor control and sensory input? We were going, I don't really understand how this thing gets around in the world. How does this caterpillar actually feel? Uh, what does it sense? What does it need to sense? And how does it control its body? And at that point, once you come to that, that question and you, you recognize that, well, we know how to control some sorts of machines and robots, and you realize that, it doesn't apply to a caterpillar. It doesn't really apply to a worm. So we started to realize that uh, the experimental animal we were working on was actually a bit of a conundrum, that we really had no idea how something that had unlimited degrees of freedom, essentially, uh, you know, it can turn itself into a knot, it can deform endlessly. How on earth does it control its body? And 
A traditional answer from an engineering viewpoint might have been, well, it dedicates more of its control systems, controlling its body. It's got too many degrees of freedom, so it has to have lots of muscles and lots of control and a complex nervous system. And so we, we sort of thought about that for a while, and we looked at it, and we said, well, wait a minute, it tunnels into a moth, and a moth has an articulated skeleton with joints. So if we can compare, basically, the nervous system in those two stages of the animal's life and ask the question, are the nervous systems very different? And of course, apart from the highly sophisticated sensory systems that moths have, the basic motor control, they don't have more neurons. They don't have a huge number of neurons compared to a caterpillar, right? or vice versa. So that made us realize that the, the caterpillar might be an interesting um, way to look at controlling uh, deformable machines, because somehow they can do it without having bigger brains. And in fact, if you look right across the animal kingdom, uh, with the exception of cephalopods, our friend the octopus, which we can talk about, um, invertebrates have smaller nervous systems. And I'm not going to say they're simpler, but perhaps they are, but they certainly have fewer neurons. So somehow, animals have solved the problem of massive degrees of freedom without increasing the size of the nervous system and the number of connections. So that just made us very interested. And that's how we started to get into, into in soft robotics. And at the time, it was not really called soft robotics. Uh, a lot of people, it was biomimetic uh, robotics, you know, um, bio-inspired. Uh, there were a lot of groups who were doing soft materials in robots, but it, it, it hadn't consolidated into a field. Um, but we realized that by... Uh, studying the caterpillar, we might be able to actually um, provide some insights for how to engineer some um, deformable machines. So that was in the early 2000s uh, when we started doing that. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with the background of neuroscience in, in, in the very early days, but a lot of people have built machines, robots, in order to try and understand uh, how animals work. Way back in the 1950s, um, the Grey Walters in England was doing this with his so-called turtles. And, and um, Ken Rhoda, who was a professor here at Tufts University in the, uh, from the 1930s until 1970s, um, he built a, a robotic cockroach, um, Blatter Roboticus, I think it was called, or something, um, to try and understand uh, photo, photo taxes and, and that type of thing. And I've actually got it. I found it next to a dumpster here at Tufts when I arrived. Nobody knew what it was. And so we've got it in a display case here at Tufts. Um, but, so there's a long tradition of, of neuroscientists sort of reaching out to, to engineering to try and understand problems. So I think that's where we came from. We came from actually thinking about the animal, recognizing that this was not something we knew how to do in the engineering world and trying to put the two together. Mm -hmm. Very fascinating. Maybe that's like a question about manifestation, the, the intelligence through the body here. Can you tell me about in the field now from 2007 till now, how do you see the level of understanding, how we, we can apply the morphology and the shape of the body to yeah, manifest intelligence here? And do you think there's still other questions we didn't touch it because it's very challenging to get an answer for how this already happened in the evolution or nature. Right. So um, 
we, we, in the soft robotics field, we talk a lot about, you know, morphological computation and the idea that you can offload uh, the central control to the mechanics. That wasn't prevalent when we first started um, 20 years ago. Um, that Although people were talking about it, and in particular Rolf Pfeiffer and Josh Barngard uh, with their work, they'd been talking about the fact that you need embodiment to effectively create an intelligence that we would recognize. And um, the, I think the problem we still have with morphological computation, we all agree it happens. I mean, it, in fact, engineers have been using it for a long, long time anyway. We just didn't call it that, right? It's clever design, right? You, you, you build in the complexity to your, 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 your mechanisms inside a clock or a watch or whatever, and, and there you have something that doesn't have a central controller. It's all done within the mechanics. So we've been doing it for a very long time. But I think as it started to consolidate, the world of, of computer science was thinking in that way quite a lot. Uh, engineering was, in, pure engineering was not thinking that way very much. Um, it was still considered part of clever technical design rather than, and because we're so enamored, I think, of fast electronics and, and being able to build incredibly sophisticated control systems in, in electronics, there didn't really seem to be a need to, to go in that direction. Um, you've made the mechanical system as simple as you could for it to do the job so that it's easy to control. Once you move into the world of deformable, nonlinear, you know, anisotropic materials, that type of thing, uh, that traditional approach doesn't work very well. Now you suddenly are up against computational demands that are just ridiculous. And so that's where I think it started to get some ground. Soft robotics was able to sort of capture that whole idea of morphological computation. Um, my concern with it, I, I, I still avidly believe that's the way it works. We call it neuromechanics when we're in doing neuroscience. Um, but, um, you know, which, who can point to the killer app, if you will, the robot that demonstrates this to the max where you could not possibly have had it do that job without having morphological computation? In most cases... The robots, even the ones, sophisticated ones that get built that are, are deformable and soft, we could actually have controlled it a different way. We could probably have come up with a, another way to do it. I, I think the the issue still is that uh, the jury's still out until we can actually show that is morphological computation control of a machine that could not have been done without that approach. That that's the best. It really it's the winner. And I think we were we're not quite there yet. I mean, I I'm, I hope that from this podcast, perhaps you know, people can throw me lots of examples and say, "Oh, we think this is a good example of this one." You know, um, and there 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 are, you know, lovely sophisticated models. You know, reservoir computing and all sorts of things where you can replicate uh, central pattern generator approaches without having a central pattern generator. A lot of that's been done. But um, I, what I want to see is is a robot that can walk around in a complex world uh, using these concepts and principles. And I think we're still another way off yet. We haven't gotten there. Interesting. Maybe before going to this point, uh, I just want to ask you, if there's any other point as criticism for the field? Like, because I think maybe sometimes you mentioned 
I think excellent point, but I think that following the trend and not focusing on the practicality or the maybe the most important question. Do you see any is this point happening in the field now? I'm asking this question because I, I'll, I, I, yeah, maybe you can answer this part. Do, do, you, do you see that, or, or do you have any kind of critique for any approaches also? Sorry, of of, of uh, soft robotics not having uh, directly shown applications. Is that where what you're thinking here? Well, that's one thing, and also maybe in general, do you see any buoyance? Because I think also, given your role and as editor in chef for soft robotics, you encounter a lot of ideas. And maybe I'm going to ask you this question because I really like um, the point you said here. It's like controlling what kind of ideas just could be transferred for the public or also general read, general people also to listen to it. And But I feel, have you controlled ideas? It's like, oh, this is not working. This is not really interesting. And this is interesting. I, I like this because I think, yeah. I just want to know how you think about that when someone gives you this idea and you said, no, this is not really interesting. And they push back and you said, no, no, it's not interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I, I actually, I, I'm very, very unlikely to ever say something is not worth thinking about or say no. I, I am, I think that it's extremely important to be really open and uh, willing to extend into many, many different domains. I think that's really, really important for, for the type of engineering that we're talking about. Um, when we um, started the Soft Robotics Journal, we had to think a lot about the way um, the field, would, what it would need because the journal was really designed to uh, service a need. We were saying, look, there's all these folks who are doing this work and they don't really have a forum in which they can, can present it. They're, they're, they're scattered across you know, many, many, many journals, many, many conferences. They're in biology, they're in computer science, et cetera. So we sat down and we, we said, okay, what, what do we think the field will need to, to move forward? And, and it was a, a way of gathering our arms around all the different ideas, even though they were not necessarily roboticists. Okay, so we we started out, and I, I I may be getting the numbers wrong here, but I think we had either five or six fields that we wanted to cover. Computer science being an important one, partly because the idea of you know morphological computation was really really strongly in that field as well. Uh, material science, absolutely. Uh, soft robotics is expanding the toolbox of materials available to engineers, right? From from basically rigid things that are, we can use rigid mechanics to to just about every material that you can imagine, including biological ones, right? Proteins and fats and things. So we needed we needed material science, computer science. We needed traditional roboticists. I mean, absolutely, you know, and and, and we needed control theory. Um, and the other big area that I wanted in there was biology. And that's obviously because of my bias, but um, I, did, I wanted to make sure that by starting the journal and, and maintaining a, a position with the journal and, and keeping it going is that we could help to incorporate and cross over some of the biology into engineering and vice versa. 
Um, I think that's been reasonably successful, but not as much as I would like, um, because I think it's really hard to have most biologists think of themselves as being um, studying ideas that are relevant to robotics. Uh, soft robotics is one of the few areas where I think they do, um, but mostly, you know, most biologists do not. Um, I know that you've been talking to, to some, some of my colleagues here that um, work in the area of, of biology and morphological um, code writing. Um, and so there are a few people like that, but they're, they're, they are, you know, thinking incredibly deeply and broadly. And um, I don't think every biologist thinks that way. So um, the journal really was trying to gather ourselves around that. We, we've, we've added more, more types of expertise as well because, you know, we, we needed to have, you know, more expertise in, in sensing, for example, electronics and stretchable electronics and, and flexible electronics. So we've gradually added more um, associate editors in those areas and tried to put our arms around that. But um, it's the field of soft robotics is um, it's not unique, but I think it exemplifies uh, embracing ideas from all sorts of disciplines, and probably every discipline that I can think of, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's important we don't sort of... Uh, dismiss ideas and areas of science out of hand because um, we've got to be flexible. Uh, maybe I want to ask you again in the field, do you think about the idea that we select maybe related to funding or, yeah, I mean, the trend, sometimes it's just not easy to go on, oh, let's do something completely different no one's doing and sometimes it's scary. I'm telling you this because, yeah, it's not... Not always people speak about that in public, but I think sometimes you're afraid to go for something completely against the things, and, and then you feel afraid just because it's completely new. There's no much work done in this area. Did you guide on that? And what do you think about this point? Yeah. So, um, you're, you're raising some interesting ideas here because, uh, there's a conflict between doing things in a field that you uh, you know will be accepted and recognized and, and allow you to maintain a career in the field. And then particularly for a young person, uh, having these crazy ideas, if you will, right, sort of brand new things that are, are not well explored and taking a huge risk in whether or not that's going to be successful. Um, I have to say that um, I had the absolute luxury of being able to move from being a, a neurobiology person only to being a more engineering and roboticist because I already had a tenured position here in the university. Um, I don't think it would have been possible uh, or it would have been probably ill-advised as a young assistant professor to have gone off and done that because the way the the whole evaluation system works at tenure and um you know maintaining your position in in academia you have to be accomplished you have to and and people have to recognize that because that's the way it works so just being being a a, a clever ideas person and uh, pursuing things that are going to be really risky is is difficult in the career structure that we have um so um 
I guess what I'm saying is that it's incumbent on uh, established people, certainly people who feel secure in their, in their positions, to take big risks and to take big risks on supporting junior people in the field. Um, I, I have to say I have benefited enormously from all of the people that have come to my lab because, you know, most of what has been really fun and exciting that's been in my lab has been from the people that joined my lab, not from me. You know, I can throw out ideas all the time, but they're not going to land all the time. But, um, but the people in my lab are the ones that push things forward and, and say, hey, I really want to build a robot out of foam. Why? Let's talk about it. Let's go there. You know, um, so I think what we need is for our, our, our senior, senior personnel to be really open to that, to support younger people being able to, to pursue these new ideas um, and, and pioneer them together. I think that's, that's probably the solution we have um, because it's risky. Another thought occurs to me in terms of the history of the field, though, uh, and I hope I'm not going too far off, but... Um, a lot of the current field of soft robotics was formed probably, let's say, 10 or 12 years ago um, from a huge influx of funds, both in Europe and in the USA. And uh, in the USA, it was through uh, mainly programs funded by the Defense Department, but open. They weren't, uh, like, you know, secreted. And, and in Europe from, I think, the European Commission that was funding a lot of this. And they put a lot of funds into, into trying to develop new, new types of soft robotic technology. And there was this massive, massive innovation. Right? People, this is where we start to get jamming systems for, for doing you know, stiff flop type robotics. Uh, we get cleverly clever uh, types of pneumatic systems and new nets. And you know things that can move in incredibly complicated ways just because of the way the pressure is distribu distributed. Have people building you know um, actuators that were really just little explosion machines, you know, to make the robots jump and move around. Um, we had the different types of actuators, shape memory alloys, and uh, you know twisted strings and electronic polymers. We had and this massive sort of innovation uh, because the whole. Uh, plane of of ideas was open. It hadn't been explored before, so it was easy to not fill up with novel ideas. And what has happened since then, I think, is that there have been far fewer jumps forward, and that's inevitable, right? It's easy to come up with all the new ideas when nobody's ever done this stuff before. Uh, everything's novel, everything's fun, everything's interesting, and you can explore it. I think we're at the phase now in, in the field of soft robotics where um, we're starting to figure out what works, what doesn't, what's a good plan, what's the details. I mean, it, it starts to come down to really, really good engineering, right? The, the, you know, so you can make something blow up and twist. Uh, how are we going to use that? What are the limitations? How do we make it better? How do we, how do we apply it to a particular circumstance? So now we're down in the nitty-gritty details which can be a little frustrating to, to some of us in the field who want to see the next big paradigm shift. Right? We want to see where's the next really, really cool idea. Uh, whereas a lot of um, you know, what's being done now is the hard work of, of making good engineering. Um, so 
I think we've moved to a slightly different phase um, and it's going to take really, really creative people to sort of make those new paradigm shifts and come up with something completely different. Um, um, I hope that that happens. It's going to be less common than it was, in my opinion. Although there's more people in the field. Yep, I really like this blend because I think it's bring a lot of, uh, I think, uh, members of this podcast because I ask this question about should we do the project based on technology driven or maybe just for, for research purpose like do whatever you want just i have a new idea i want to do that and and sometimes we just only state um this kind of detailed answer for where i can use it what limitation i think this sometimes is missing pieces in the in the story of the research um can i ask you do you think this is everyone should consider that or, or in the general scene of the the progress of the field do you think we should mostly focus on the technology-driven part as a product or just research? Because I think there is two, yeah, there is no definite answer here, but I'm just curious, since your review, I think, again, for the journal, because I think that's the way we have the peer review system here, when you look for the ideas, just to, you can discern this idea potentially could, could really worse the peer review at longer process, you know what I mean? That's the part I'm, I, I think many of us want to hear because that's the peer review system here. I think that's where we can see the articles or, or their research. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there, as you said, there is not a, a simple answer to this because the, the, the two things have to have to go hand in hand at some point. Right? We, we, have, we have to have a little bit of both of these. The, the ideas pushing forward and exploring and then the, the applications and development of that technology um, I think we're we're at a a little bit of a difficult stage in the field right now. Um, <clears throat> one of the downsides of having that huge explosion of innovation early on is that there was an overpromising of outcomes, and we have not. And that, that, it's inevitable. I'm not blaming anybody at all. This is the way fields usually work. You you have to sort of promote what you're doing and explain why it's exciting. And sometimes that leads to some people thinking, okay, the technology is going to get applied and we're going to you know, have uh, human-assistive soft robots walking around the house in five years. You know, and, and, and those things have not happened. So we're in a difficult stage. And I think what the field really does need at this point is, uh, as we were talking earlier, not just a demonstration of how computa you know, morphological computation works, but actually a demonstration of machines that can take all of these cool ideas and do something we couldn't do before. Uh, most, as you know, most robots or robot technologies that get published in society conferences and even in journals um, don't go very far. You end up on a shelf. And it really is upsetting and disappointing um, because sometimes it then needs another engineer to, to sort of reinvent it. And, you know, say, oh, wait a minute, somebody did this 10 years ago, and that's really cool, but you know, nobody's picked it up in the meantime. So I think uh, we... The field would benefit enormously from from there being a well-accepted, uh, clear application 
that we are able to to fulfill and that will make society better. And um, we haven't quite gotten there yet. Uh, we're still, you know, sort of getting, inspiring the entertainment industry probably is one of the things we've managed to do quite well, but uh, we've not yet made that machine that that couldn't be made on the other way. Um, so in, in answer to your question, I think is that we... We need. We do need all those ideas. Um, they're they're wonderful. We probably at this point, would, as a field, would be well advised to to focus on making the machines that that will save people in an emergency situation, for example, where it would then become much more accepted that these novel technologies and ideas have a value and are important. Uh, ultimately, we're mostly funded by. Um, by people's tax money, uh, occasionally by companies, but usually by tax money. And uh, people need to see that this stuff is worthwhile. Um, you know, if there are many problems in the world, and if uh, if someone sees that there are folks starving in the world or being buried in an earthquake and not being saved, and why the heck are we funding Trimmer to do work on caterpillars? Right? We, we, we need to fill that gap somewhere in the Melon. Yeah. I do appreciate this answer. Maybe I want to go also again for the point you mentioned, I think, before this recording. You mentioned the geopolitical, geopolitical growth of the of the field. And maybe you can tell us about the your prediction. I think that's one we never discussed in the podcast before, so I think it would be interesting to know about it. Yeah, so um it really, um, we, we touched a little bit earlier on, right, which is that the, the uh, formative years of soft robotics was definitely focused on um, on two main parts of the world, which is was the European investment and then the U.S. By the way, the European was much more directed. Um, it was clearly a recognition that people were working in this field and that there was a need for this technology, and the European Commission started to fund quite a lot of projects that were uh, directed at soft robotics. Um, which was was fantastic. Here in the U.S., it was a, a little bit different. Um, it, we the, the program that I think uh, there's many programs, but there was um, primary program that I think influenced uh, my thinking was called ChemBots, and it was to try and uh, make chemical robots, right? Whatever that is, and the, the idea was intelligent matter and this type. So um, those two areas were really you know massively influential. Um, but that was confined. It wasn't going anywhere else. Uh, I would say in the last 10 years, there has been a massive change in the way things are now working. Um, that seed has grown dramatically. Uh, we see um, work that's relevant to software bonds going on pretty much all across the world in all of the um, societies where they're investing in, in doing technological um development um the um you know the chinese republic for example um but in china is really massively um involved in this now uh we get a tremendous amount of papers submitted to software boards from china um we have a lot of papers from from japan and from korea uh they're very very important we're getting papers also from from india uh, we get quite a lot from from Australia and some from New Zealand and a few also from South America. So 
this is now um, broadly representative, actually, of, of, I think, the way those economies have invested in, in their research and development. And so soft robotics has become uh, embedded, if you will, in the research endeavors around the world. It's, it's, it's no longer just confined to a few directed programs in, in particular places in the world. The, the other part that I think is really great is not just the investment of what, what governments and, uh, and agencies are doing around the world. It's actually been uh, the people that have come out of this. Um, one of my greatest pleasures, actually, is um, not just the research papers that we publish, but the fact that we train people who go on to do great things in the field. Uh, because that's where you have an exponential influence. You train people who train people, right? And um, that is much longer lasting. It goes way beyond any publication that you publish. Uh, so the young scientists that you train uh, are what sustain the field. And it's been a great pleasure to me to see people who were, uh, you know, originally uh, either graduate students or postdocs who imparted that early development of the field, who are now established their own laboratories and are training their own PhD, master's students, and also undergraduates. And they have spread through the world. So um, a lot of folks came to the U.S. and to Europe, and they moved back to their to their homelands and established their own labs uh, away from from Europe and America. And so it's it's been wonderful to see that. Uh, it used to be that people would say, "What's soft robotics?" And that's not true anymore. It's 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 just accepted. It is a field. Um, yeah. So I think um, you know I, I I don't have any great insights into the, the way in which governments have operated to do this. Uh, I think that they they tend to be very driven by by what they think is going to be an advantage and what is going to be useful. Um, but it's, uh, it's been a, an interesting journey. It really has. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Maybe I want to ask you about the killer application because I think you already discussed that, but when you look to the current companies, I think few of them deploying the soft pneumatic actuator, like soft robotic game. We had George Whiteside and he was speaking about that. So what, what do you think about the use cases that could be feasible now besides what you already witnessed in the market? Um, so the, as usual, right, there's going to be different energy barriers that you have to get over in order to get to be a marketable machine. Um, you know, we, we all know the stories about companies like, uh, iRobot that set out to develop something quite different from what they ended up doing, right? They, they, the barriers to, uh, breaking through the market with a new technology are, are enormous. And, um, with and then, in addition to that, there's the the um, the barriers uh, in different fields. For example, safety. So uh, you know, the medical field is a really tough one to even start innovating because uh, it's going to be highly regulated for very good reason. We we want this to be safe, mature technology that doesn't have unintended consequences. Uh, space exploration is another one, right? You don't want people in a space capsule with an unpredictable piece of technology. So um, the the question really comes down to what you know where where are things going to go? Where what where is the where are the barriers to the technology being accepted the lowest and uh, the easiest to adopt? Um, and it's a risk reward thing. Um, 
there's and there's some um, industries where the the barriers are quite low and the rewards are really high that are ones we don't normally think about very much anyway. And I don't want to get into it too much, but um, there is a lot of interest in 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 personal robots for the sex industry. Now, that's not something that we as engineers want to be thinking about very much necessarily, particularly if we're inventing this stuff. But the that that has already reached a point where there's so much money in the field, the the risk uh, in terms of you know um, things going wrong is not that high, and so the the barriers are quite low, and so that that has taken off in in a, in a big way, and it's kind of you know over there somewhere. Um, the the areas that I think we are more likely to see something that really benefits humankind in a much more uh, interesting way uh, would be in the area of search robots. Um, you know, putting things in space would be great. Medical would be really good. But I think we could actually very quickly, if we put our mind to it, make soft robots that can find people in dire situations, for example, hurricane damage, buildings that have collapsed, war situations, where we need to find people quickly in extraordinarily complex situations. Um, right now, uh, our traditional robots have been terrible at that. We really, there isn't, I don't think there's an example of a, of a traditional robot saving somebody in that situation. Those robots are also extraordinarily expensive. So they're not available to most people in the world, and, and you know there's very few of them. So imagine a disaster situation in, a, in, a, in an island community. Um, people are buried. There's been an earthquake. Uh, you know it doesn't help to have a six million dollar humanoid robot that can you know open valves and drive cars. It doesn't help us, right? But, you know. So what we need is something else, and I think. It would be relatively straightforward, and this has been a dream of mine, because working on caterpillars and being able to make something that crawls, uh, it seems to me we can make um, survey robots incredibly cheaply that burrow through debris fields and underneath buildings, small ones, uh, probably cost a few hundred dollars each. We could have an emergency trailer full of tens of thousands of these things, right? You take it into the into the emergency site. You drop all of these robots. Just let them go. Let them burrow down, and they have uh, have sensors on them, and uh, you can record where there are life signs, and you can now have an opportunity to go and get that person out because you've found them. So instead of having to wait for the heavyweight equipment to come in and remove everything, and then try and find people, which takes too long, you can find people and be directed about where you find people. So I, I I see you know it's a very specific example I know but I, I think that we we are missing an opportunity if we don't try and invest in developing that technology uh, and it's within reach it really is um, it's not that complicated this this is not what I would call rocket science in the traditional you know colloquial way of thinking about things this doesn't need us to have uh, completely new technology that's not yet invented I actually think we can do it with the technology we currently have, we just need to engineer the heck out of what we have, and I think we can do it. So, um, you know, that, imagine that. We could do that, we could do that within five years if, if there was enough investment in that.
I really like this device so much because I think we had a recent series in the Humanoid robot. I think one of the question because multiple companies are really investing in Humanoid robot. And that's really strange why everyone is focused on Humanoid robot, which is very expensive, not practical situation, as you mentioned. I think that's an interesting part about the investment even in industry that one person can say that will be the thing is and and maybe maybe it's not feasible as you say in certain situation. And I can't imagine the scenario you're explaining here, the low cost practical, safe, and this kind of things, but it seems it's not the case. And uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know uh, what the what the barriers are. Uh, I, I suspect that they're, they're economic uh, at some point uh, in that um, it would need someone to directly say, I'm going to fund that because I think that's going to be a useful thing to do. Um, and uh, but just having it as you know that idea being one that is distributed across lots and lots of research agencies around the world when we're all doing our little parts of it is not the same thing as let's make let's make this thing let's make this robot. So um, yeah, it's uh, I think it'll happen. I think that you know it, people will start to recognize that we need to do this and that it actually will be uh, beneficial in, in lots of ways. This is one of the huge things about soft robots, right, is that they could potentially be made and manufactured really, really efficiently and cheaply and be effectively disposable. Um, when we first um, were trying to get funding to, to explore the idea of soft robotics, one of the applications we talked about was um, minefields. Um, how, do you, how do you survey minefields safely and cheaply? And we suggested that you have a big canister full of little tiny soft robots. You fire it into the area and you have them all distributed and, and head off, go and look for things, and you don't have to retrieve them. You just don't care. Right? So they tell you where they detect the, the, the sign of the explosives, and now you've got a little map where the, the, the mines are, uh, and you don't have to go retrieve those robots. And, and that technology could be available to... Um, communities that have very few resources and, and are mostly affected by things like mines. Um, so um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I will see that in my lifetime. That would be, no, really nice. Most hopefully. Maybe also pull up here about the characteristic or functionality of the feature of such software like that. Do you think in the field, maybe the material development or morphological computation or morphology, as you say it, which part do you think in the field uh, like need more attention or focus? Is it we need more material? It's really enough. Do we need, uh, as you said, maybe understanding and dig deeper and maybe methodology and just to make it mature? But which part is it like sensing or maybe maybe control techniques or material or architecture? There's many many items here that wish list with that design. But if we speak about this scenario and going forward to this practicality of the design in the field now when you look in the in the research articles that just we need more of this or more of this yeah so you know i i'm sure my answer is pretty much what all of your uh, interviewees give on this right they can go down the list of technologies that need need to be solved in order to to make a good soft robot uh you know often People will often say, "Is actuators? You know, we we don't have really good actuators. Well, we actually do have a lot of good actuators, but you know, it, that that's the limitation." Um, 
And a lot, a lot of folks would say, well, it's, it's more to do with um, perhaps a design. Um, my personal uh, opinion of where, where we really, really need to focus uh, is actually something that is underway, and that is on the control sign. So we touched on this earlier, the idea of the, the distributed um, control and um, morphological computation we we had people working on this for quite a long time. Uh, it's used a little bit in some manipulator systems, uh, a little less so in, in locomotory robots. But I think we're at a point now where there's far more acceptance of uh, what I would call learning approaches to control. So, you know, AI effectively, right, where we don't necessarily have to define all of the parameters for our control system, know it ahead of time and build the system and make it work and then be adaptable, right? That's the other problem. I think that there's more acceptance in the engineering field of uh, learning approaches. I remember very early on in, in when we were trying to develop um, some robots that I got very excited by the idea of, oh, we just, we you know, have some sort of nerve net system that will you know, a genetic algorithm that will run and we'll figure out the best solution and it will make this thing work. And we even tried to get a grant to have um, lots and lots of our little software robots available for people to drive around on the internet uh, so that we could collect information that would allow us to understand how people controlled the robots so that we could control the robots better, right? People kept telling me, and it wasn't everybody, but a lot of, a lot of folks said, well, if you have to have it learn how to move, it means you don't understand it well and that you really can't uh, design and build a machine that you don't understand. And it was very frustrating because <laughs> it was a resistance, the idea that, that we, we don't have a predefined set of equations that we can apply to this, right? I think we're past that now. I think the, the, the area that really will help is for us to develop um, smart systems through AI that we don't necessarily completely understand how they work, um, but that will very quickly train our designed robot to work properly. So all we need to do is say, we want a task level control. We want this robot to be able to wiggle through here and do this under these circumstances, change this locomotion mode, uh, if it encounters a wall, it needs to be able to get out of that situation. It needs to be able to do this under these circumstances. They're my criteria. I don't care how it does it. Give me a control system. <laughs> and I think, I think that that's going to work. Um, eventually, of course, we would love to know a little bit better how to design it more, but uh, we can then have an AI that helps us to design that control system. So... Um, I think that that's going to be a tremendously exciting area, um, and hopefully that is going to have some some serious attention and investment. Oh, very interesting. Maybe if you're going to artificial muscle, can you tell me about the octopus? Because since you already mentioned how biology is so significant in this field. Maybe the first question, when we look to evolution, because that's the thing you already have been doing before, there's many, many things and mystery around us, like how these things work, where it's you know, this kind of question. So how do you select, let's study this, let's get an inspiration from that. Um, 
that's maybe the first part. How do you decide? Yeah. So in, in, in terms of the biology being an inspiration for moving forward. Yeah. Um, I think there's a big difference between being bio-inspired and being bio-informed. I think that we can be inspired to do things that have nothing to do with the biology, right? I mean, you know, classic people will talk about, you know, aircraft do not fly the way birds fly, right? They, we are inspired, but we didn't actually use their, their technology. Uh, I think we, we have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about, uh, you know, how we, what sort of actuators we might want. Um, do we actually want to mimic muscle, the so-called artificial muscle? Should it have the properties of muscle? I, possibly not. Um, muscle is limited. I mean, I, I know that there's a, a lot of folks out there, and I work on muscle, right? And a lot of people think, oh, muscle's the best actuator for soft thing. You know, it's, it's perfect. It really isn't. It's, it's pretty darn unpredictable and uh, has lots of limitations. So I think our, our so-called artificial muscles should pick the things that they want to be able to do really well, and those are what we should focus on. We shouldn't be trying to, to copy and mimic the biology. Now, there is a flip side to that, right, which is that sometimes the biology gives us answers that we would never, ever have explored and thought about ahead of time. Um, I think we can take inspiration from the... Um, concepts that are embedded within biological solutions. Um, so a muscle, for example, um, it is composed of lots and lots of cellular fibers that interact at the molecular level that are busy converting uh, ATP to into movement. And they do it through an incredibly ridiculously complex mechanism, but that's what they're doing. Uh, the reason it works so well is that it's extraordinarily well aligned and organized. It's a polycrystalline array of, of molecular motors. Um, maybe that's one of the ideas that we can grab and say, look, every one of our little um, artificial muscles, whether it's an EAP or an SMA or, or you know, heat-activated polymer, whatever else, instead of thinking of that as a bulk material that should be an actuator, we start to say, no, let's, let's put together lots and lots and lots of these in a way that, you know, allows us to achieve what muscle does. Um, so I think we've got to balance bio-inspired, bio-informed uh, carefully and make sure we're using the biology in an appropriate way. Uh, as my colleagues, you know, this is, uh, all my colleagues in biology will tell you this, that um, Everything in biology is a massive compromise. Um, nothing is optimized for one thing or even two things. Um, so we, we definitely should not be just copying. Um, as you probably know, one of the things I'm interested in doing is, is skipping over making artificial muscles and simply saying, why don't we just grow muscles? <laughs> we already have them. And uh, they, they grow, right? So the, the idea behind this, of course, is, is that we could potentially become soft roboticists that are also um, bioengineers. And that's also now part of soft robotics, right? Uh, if we know enough about the way uh, tissues are determined and how they get formed from the original cells, 
we should be able to engineer that to make stuff we want and not make stuff we don't want. And um, we're quite a long way from that. Uh, you know, many people have done it, but most of the time, well, are attempted to do it, most of the time what they're doing is taking cells that should be muscles and putting them in a dish and hoping that we can figure out what, what's not right with them and fix it. Um, but it's a long process, and I think probably a more directed approach would be for us to fully understand how a tissue gets made from its original cells and then be able to engineer that because now we fully understand it. So it actually needs massive investment in, in uh, looking at biology in order to make engineered biological machines. Um, so it's a, it's a different approach where um, we're not just taking the biology and, and using it, we're actually um, understanding the biology in order to be able to develop new things. I, I think that uh, you, you've probably had on this podcast Mike Levin, who is, works in, in some of this area, and I think he would, he would extend it even further than that. Uh, you know, he would, he would probably say that once we understand it well enough, we can make anything we want out of biology, uh, which I think is, is a, an interesting and provocative idea. I'm still just thinking about making actuators. For a long time, I, I used to say that my, my, my vision, and I would hope it happened in my lifetime, is to make essentially a moving bag of meat um, that we design a little, little you know, skeleton. Of, it, can, it doesn't even have to be biology material. It can be a polymer. We seed it with cells, and we already know how to make those cells do what they know to do. And they find the right place. They grow in the right way. They attach in the right place. Take it out of the incubator. We put a little tiny microchip in the end, and it cools away. And um, I think I think that's I think that's actually feasible. But um, you know, having started to work on that ourselves, we realize that we're still a long way. We're still a long way from being able to do that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, males cuba because you mentioned the for example, scope would be bulmer. How they grow if like the artificial one can grow alongside the tissue. Synthetic and synthetic material with m m muscles. What 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 are things they seem still about question about how wolves can grow the synthetic one and and uh, muscles? Here? Yeah. So the I, in my view of things, the artificial tissue would not be something that is dynamic. It would be a, a it would be the structure that helps to form the final machine and the biology uses the structure to, to do what it needs. I think we, we wouldn't be able to make a growing robot like that. Uh, I think it would be, you know, a machine that just is what it is and it will wear out and die. Um, I think if we, the next step would be to actually have any um, of the, the main structure of the robot be biological itself, so an entirely biological robot. I think that's feasible. I think we would still probably put some artificial materials in there because, you know, we can, where it's necessary, where we want it to have teeth, we could have teeth made of titanium. You know, we, we don't have to be constrained to, to the biology at that point. Um, I would like to, though, make what I think is a really important point in the, in the biological robotics realm. For me, and it's with personal view, but um, I think it's probably something we can debate. 
I don't think we should ever be tempted to make robots that can reproduce. Um, I think that would lead to all sorts of ethical and just physical problems. Um, I think we need to be in control of how many robots we have and where they are. Uh, so in the factory, we can make millions of them cheaply and they grow, but we don't want each one of those robots to be able to make another version of itself. That may not be good. The other part that even as a, bio, a neurobiologist, I want to do warn everyone about is we, we shouldn't, you shouldn't grow brains. I don't think that's a good idea. Why? Okay, because first, I don't think we need them. Brains are actually pretty darn bad oh, at doing neural processing compared to a microprocessor. Uh, people don't believe me, but they are. They, they, they work very well because we have, you know, what do we have, 10 billion neurons in a brain? We have an incredibly complicated neuron system in the brain. It's big. It does all these things. But any individual part of that brain is a pretty lousy processing unit compared to uh, modern electronics. It can only fire action potentials, pieces of information of about 100 hertz, right? So when you've got a gigahertz microprocessor, we can't keep up with that. Our nervous systems can't do that. So as long as your job of the robot is relatively straightforward, microcontroller and microprocessor is going to be much better than a living tiny brain, okay? That's my first part. The second part is ethics. I think the moment that you give something a nervous system, uh, you are raising the whole iron issue, and presumably this will happen, and we will get there, and we'll have to deal with it anyway. But I would want people to think about it ahead of time. Uh, it becomes an entity, an agent, that we have to think about in terms of other living creatures too. And, and we're already at the point where... Uh, you know, the octopus is receiving protection as a as a creature that has agency and that we think probably has some, dare I say, sentience probably. Um, so if that's the case and we start to create artificial versions of those, we need to be very, very thoughtful about why we're doing that um, and if we need to do that. So... My personal view is at this point, we don't need brains. We don't. We shouldn't have reproductive systems. Uh, at some point, that may change as long as we know what we're doing. This is really now uh, excellent point and very intriguing. Maybe I want to ask you about that sentient part because I think I asked it uh, like 11. I, I think that's what the theme of the, of the podcast two weeks ago about. Is it possible to design artificial sentient mach machine? And, and he was just trying to ask why we ask his question. Maybe I'll just give you the sentience part. Can you tell us the characteristic if we have the robot, for example, and the sentient part, what does it mean? Like, yeah, if we can be maybe create about feature functionality right. that we say like that's case. Yeah. So um with with any any uh device like this, the when you give it uh a choice of what to do. And we need to do that for, for a robot to actually be useful and adaptable in a, in a human world situation or a natural environment. It needs to be able to make choices. It can't just be pre-programmed ahead of time, right? We, we, we can't possibly predict everything that can happen. So it needs to be able to make choices. The moment it needs to be able to make choices, 
you 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 get into the world of of, of ethics and values. Uh, you know the the car industry has got this problem with their self-driving cars. You know, um, yeah. Does the AI of your car choose to run over the child that ran into the road or risk killing the three people on the sidewalk by avoiding them? That's an ethical decision, right? And um, uh, it's one that humans do right like that, and we and we expect it, and we sort of make allowances for it. But when we have machines doing it, we're going to be second guessing everything, right? Is that the right way to do it? Um, so, I think we're a little way off from that being maybe you know we're a little way off from that being a problem in in our field of robotics, but. Um, when we, the more adaptable our machines, the more capable they are, uh, the more we're going to have to deal with issues of agency, sentience, uh, does this machine have rights? Okay. And, and it's not just about whether it can feel pain. Um, it's to do with whether or not it, um, has become so much part of society that to take away its rights would be an immoral thing to do. And it's getting into an area of philosophy that I am not qualified to talk about. I was looking for the review for as the teacher, uh, you're teaching the class, and everyone would say it's fantastic and amazing, but the exams are quite tough. That's what they say. That, uh, And it was interesting to see how you dedicate and also as a teacher, what makes a good teacher also the class. Oh yeah, um, I, I, teaching always has an element of performance. There's no doubt about that. Uh, yeah, and uh, I don't know that. Uh, I think everybody can learn to be a good teacher. Actually, I think you can learn it. Some people, though, is more natural than others. I think the key thing for me, I, I it may be different ones, but for me, the key thing is to recognize what the students may be struggling with and what they're thinking and where they're coming from. Um, because they don't realize that you were once in their position. Um, they assume that you know all this stuff and somehow you're different from them. Um, when in fact, I like to, to sort of think about it, well, no, wait a minute, you, you are exactly what I was, you know, many, many years ago. And so I can put myself in, in your position. And I think explaining things um, in a way that makes it open so that you can you can be a little bit vulnerable. Um, I think another, another important thing is to make sure that the students feel um, that they have the opportunity to question. Um, these days... Uh, the role of a teacher, and it probably has always been true, but particularly these days, the role of the teacher is not just to convey information. The, the information is available to everyone. You know, my students can access everything I know. Uh, the problem is it's not organized, so I'm trying to organize it for them, but it's not conveying them information. It's a conveying a way of thinking in a critical manner and take what you're teaching people and have them be critically thinking about it and appraising it and going, is that true? Why? I don't think that can possibly be true because so and so and, and questioning all the time. 
So they have to feel the the students need to feel that they can question. Um, it's it's I don't know a formal way to make sure that that's true that they feel that way, but I think good teachers are all able to do that. And then what you're doing is triggering people's minds to turn. You're not just dumping things into a sponge. You're actually um, you're inspiring thought, and that is that's the key thing. And, and part of that is getting them excited. You know, uh, it, and, and by the way, soft robotics is a great way to do it because one of my colleagues here told me one day, he said, you know, um, he said, I use robotics in the same way that car companies use their fancy cars. They stick their fancy car out on the podium in front of the dealership and everybody goes, oh, look at that car. Get them inside so they'll buy, you know, one of their cars. He said, I use robotics to get people inside to learn some engineering. <laughs> so, um, and I think soft robotics is awesome for that because people, it's accessible. It's accessible. People can actually do some of this in their kitchens if they need to. And so once you've got them hooked into thinking about it, now, yeah, you teach them the hard stuff as well. And they want to do it because it, it's interesting to them. Maybe I'll ask you this question, but I don't know if you can. I would love to answer it since you were in biology before. Do you, do you believe there's aliens that like live or form like just like aliens? Or... Um, it's, uh, you know, the numbers tell us that it, it must exist. Uh, and it must exist. There must be alien life. Um, just sheer opportunity for that to have evolved in the universe. It must happen everywhere. Um, we may never ever experience it and that's because of the massiveness of the universe i think i think that's that's what it is we, we may find ourselves pretty much in our local environment alone because you've got to travel you know hundreds of light years to get to whatever else is around there so uh it's very very unlikely we'll directly encounter anything unless we learn some physics that we don't currently know. So um, I I would love to find alien things <laughs> because, you know, uh, the diversity of life on this planet already is is truly stunning. Um, you know, and, and I know we're at the end of the podcast, but there, there are wasps that are, the entire wasp is smaller than the single cell inside many bodies, the entire wasp. And they're so small that their neurons don't have any nuclei. They've got rid of them because they're not so small. And you think about the diversity of the biology, uh, you know, it's it's absolutely amazing. And I would just love to know what else can be evolved in another, another environment. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, I think it's going to remain just speculation. Maybe the final question for you, what kind of truths you would want to know in your lifetime, the truths. Uh, at the beginning, what cost you mentioned about the engineering science and the truths. But for you, that you have this burning desire and clearly you're so passionate about what you do. But what kind of the truth that you would love to know in your lifetime, like something I have to know. Like, you know what I mean? Just something every day. Something I have to know, yeah. Um, I I think it's partly my my stage in life. I'm I'm wondering. I would love to know um, why 
living things have to age. And and there is to be you know there is really not a particular uh, reason for that. I think it's actually selected for. I think it's a feature of living systems. But I don't think that aging and even death are inevitable outcomes of something that's alive. Um, and we have examples of creatures, uh, you know, some sea anemones, for example, uh, that that just live continuously. They just live. They shed cells all the time. Just just live. They, they're all almost immortal. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what, so I I would love to know the answer of of, of that that and that would be a lovely lovely thing to sort of um, to have. Um, I worry that if we know that, we might make everyone immortal and then the world's going to be a very difficult place to be. This is wild. I think um, this is a really excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, yeah, a little, I think this will get a little lot of but I think it's um, it's an excellent point. I agree. Yeah. Thanks so much. I don't know if you have any final words like to say who will be listening or for the community. Any final words like to say? Well, first I'd like to thank you for the for the for the chat. It's been a lot of fun. Um you given me a chance, as all professors like to do, just talk. Thank you. Uh very much appreciate it. Um but I'd also um I I think I'd just like to encourage the, the software bodies community as broadly as possible to to really um let their imaginations run. Uh creativity is the key factor. Um I think it's the thing that when I hire somebody in my lab Yes, I want them to have some skills, but creativity and interest, excitement, curiosity, those are the really key things. So I'm, I'm hoping that the community as a whole will, will respect and support people to be creative and curious and, uh, and keep this field moving.